my friends, it's Sophie, and welcome to This Trying Life, a podcast about, well, all it takes to try and be alive. Here we are, episode four of This Trying Life, going against everything that I said at the beginning of the year when I was committing to doing one podcast episode a month. This is episode four, coming out in the fifth month of the year. And in the spirit of that, realizing that life is imperfect. And so this episode is entitled The Imperfect Imperfect, because as I've discovered over the last couple of months, Even the ways in which life is imperfect can surprise you. You can think you're prepared for its imperfectness, that even if imperfection comes sneaking up behind you, you're ready, you know what it looks like, you've covered all your bases. But sometimes life reveals that there are more bases than you think, or no bases, no bases at all, and you're just lost. And so for that, you just have to do your best. And the funny thing is, I'm not mad at myself for not getting out episode four on time. And that's new, this feeling of sort of pleasure in playing in the mud of screwing up, of the lesser than, of not getting things right, not getting them good enough. Usually I'd let that trip me up and keep me down, but I guess I'm discovering a degree of not caring about doing things the way that I set out to do them and going with the flow a bit more. I'm trying my best to live the life I want to lead and I have no idea what will get me there but I am following the path regardless. I'm a trooper. (laughs) So my guest today is the inimitable Jodi Essery. Again, this is part two of our conversation from January. She has a great quote in here, which I love, which is, I live the life that I lead. And I think that's so true. It's all we can do. There are some things to note on this imperfect episode. Number one is that this was my first interview for this podcast, and sometimes the technology failed. The internet cut in and out, and at the time I wasn't really experienced enough to ask her to repeat something. So there are two, maybe three key points where the internet connection cuts out, and it's hard to hear what she's saying. So I'm sorry for that. Uh, But re-editing this episode four months later has shown me that there are things that I can do next time when I interview someone, like asking them to repeat what they just said. So I will do better next time, friends. And then there's also this bizarre quiet tapping you can hear sometimes, which when I was interviewing her, I didn't know whether it was like a quirk of our internet connection or whether it was one of her delightful children playing on the keyboard. And I'm so hoping it's the latter. She talks about her kids in this part of the um, interview and there's some real wisdom and insight in there. So I hope you enjoy. Okay, here's Jody. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think maybe the reckoning in all of that is to say that in the same way as a young person that I integrally believed that what I wrote was automatically sort of uh, ready for an audience. I think that we have, I have a, I had a vision of myself as winning something, whatever that was, being the best something or other. And I feel like that 
sort of the winning for me right now is the, just the recognition that hardly anybody wins in the way that we have a picture of winning early on, but it, that it doesn't need to be a disappointment to see that we are just like other people. There's no, I think I carried this notion that in order to sort of succeed, it would mean distinguishing myself somehow in a recognizable way that other people would see was the best. Mm. Uh, and it's like living a life is an effort and it's a beautiful win. So it doesn't need to be better than somebody else's to somehow distinguish itself. And, and the deep satisfaction in that is kind of, I think, the moment that I'm at now. I think that's so common. Hearing you speak, that's exactly the feeling that I've had, you know, my whole life. And maybe all artists have it, if not all people, the desire to be winning and to be special. And it's not just a desire. It's um, like it's an inherent thinking that I am. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I, I am special. So I should be leading this life that I see in my mind. But what you're talking about, the beautiful everyday I don't know, there's something in that. And also that maybe there are things that I thought I would be one way and it, it had to be that way to sort of support what I was going after in the world. But actually maybe I can be a person who can cope with more things than I thought I could. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you another question. Along the lines of life is sort of hard enough as it is, and I wondered if you would speak to what you find specifically hard about life. Yeah, strangely. So when I said hard, I regretted it immediately. <laughs> the word has reformed. It was the wrong word. Um, that it's that there's an intensity to it, and there's that in order to just be in the world at all requires a lot of actions and thought. Um, and and the more I realize that, the more I realize how unintentional. I am and how also kind of comparably easy my life is. Actually, it was interesting. I was helping um, I was helping my son write something last night. He was having trouble. He'd been asked to write a response to a book that the class had read together. And in the book, as I understand it, there's a sort of young character who has to do what he described as a lot of risky things in order to help her family. So she cuts off her hair. She dresses as a boy. She has to go out and buy and sell things for her family. It's like a very high stakes situation. And they'd been asked to uh, write three paragraphs. And the second paragraph was supposed to look for an example from their own life that they could compare where they had done something they didn't want to do in order to help someone else and how they felt about that beforehand during it and after and he had struggled with it and we had a note home from the teacher saying uh leaf was having some trouble coming up with um an idea for his second paragraph so i've sent it home with him hoping that maybe you can help him to think of a time and his obstacle was that in order to get full points for the paragraph the word deep had been used that the student would make a deep connection. And he said that nothing that he could think of felt deep to him. It all felt kind of very surface level. And so 
finally he picked something and he was writing about it. And then he, when he was sort of wrapping up the idea, he said that one of the differences between his life and the life of the main character was that the main character in the book had, had, had to do these risky, dangerous things and that he leads a very simple, straightforward life. And I think I, I similarly am going through a, sort of the same thing. I lead the life that I lead, but I, there certainly it is at this moment fairly free of obstacle. And to what degree am I making um, what I would consider to be an acceptable effort to push myself inside of that ease in order to support things in the world. So I guess, weirdly, I don't feel like I can say that life is hard for me. It's full, but it's not difficult. And sometimes I feel as if I'm insufficient, I guess, in my efforts to fill out that ease um, responsibly. Hmm. What would you like to put more effort into? This is the thing. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Part of it feels to me as if the movement in myself to become smaller or more intimate means that I should be looking very close to home. Like it should be neighborhood level, you know? Uh, and then other parts of me feel as if that's, that makes my capacity limited. I'm in awe of people who see the broader picture and then understand or work towards or struggle to make a place for themselves inside of that that's meaningful. That just seems massive to me. You mean when you're, yeah, give me an example. Make like a global difference of some sort. To be able to say this is a massive problem in the world and I'm going to use my efforts and skills and time to focus on this one part of it. I think that is so wonderful. I think it's amazing. No, but I think you do that in focusing on your community and your family. Like another word I thought of when I thought of you was, well, I thought of many words actually when I thought of you, but family was a big one, but also community. Like I think you foster that in people and welcome them in like Sherry and I before I left Toronto were talking and she had said this was prior to me leaving but she had said oh you know when Jody has her Thanksgiving this year would you like to go and I thought oh of course I would love to go there's nothing I would love more than like being welcomed into your warm house with all the joy and food and laughter and you know hecticness I think you have a real ability to I don't know, create spaces that people want to be in because you're offering a sense of community. Yeah, so that that's quite an amazing thing for you to say. And I think sometimes I feel like if I do that once a year, it's like, oh God, that was big. But it's like, I, should I do that once a week? Should I do that once a day? You know, there's this sometimes a pressure to sort of like scale up the good things that you are capable of doing. And <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. No, I think scale down. <laughs> so my impulse is scale down and pressure, I feel, is scale up, right? Yeah, 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 totally. But I think that's the whole pressure of 
the world that we live in. I think these things that we've been discussing have so much to do with comparisons, which I think is inherently human, but just this constant comparing ourselves to others of what we should be doing and how we should be living our lives. And um, did you do that as a child? Do you think that's something we do as children? Or do you think that's something that being an adult has thrust upon you? No, I definitely did that as a kid. And I just realized actually very recently, in the last few days, I had a recognition that so much of what I did sort of as a slightly older kid was about separating myself from the pack a little bit. Like I was always seeking the thing that would make me different or in my mind thinking I have to do a thing so that I don't just end up staying in this place forever. So getting away was a big notion for me. So what I realized was that I think part of the story that I told myself was that doing things that were kind of artistic, like possibly writing or definitely doing theater, were the kinds of things that happened in places that were different than where I grew up. I don't think that's true, but I think that's the story that I told myself. So I guess I did compare myself and I wanted to be worldly. And I think that that evolved over time, but it certainly pervaded my university time as well, where I realized that I wasn't worldly and I, and I wanted to become more worldly or that was a, that the worldliness was a notion at that moment that I, that I was uh, running after. Um, And also that has messed up my, for years that messed up the idea of belief for me. I think we've talked about this before um, that to admit belief in something was to somehow um, open yourself up to the possibility that you would be revealed to be uh, wrong or somehow believing might reveal that you didn't know everything there was to know. So you had been somehow gullible or um, you had been caught in a net of people who didn't know everything. And so I think I was very afraid for a long time to say that I believed in anything because I didn't want it to reveal some sort of ignorance that would then make me feel embarrassed or ashamed. Right. I wanted to sort of seek admission into the club of knowers and, <laughs> That probably was part of the seed of my stinginess as well, to go back to something we talked about earlier. To be generous is also to take things at face value. Totally, totally. And to be generous with our beliefs, being willing to say, (laughs) I don't know, I still think of that line in that short story that you selected of one of mine that you really liked, which was, I was the ultimate child believer. Yeah, yeah. I love that girl, you know, the one who's like, I'm 12 and I believe in Santa Claus or whatever it is. Yeah. Looking back, like there were a few years where I was a theater critic for um, a newspaper in Montreal. And I realized that I was limited by a fear that saying that I had liked something would somehow reveal me to be um, less smart. You know, that ultimate fear of just putting yourself on a limb and saying, oh my God, I love that. And someone else going, 
you did. I thought it was completely, and then giving 10 reasons why it wasn't that great, right? I, I wasn't, I didn't have the confidence at that time to just own my opinions. And so I was stingy with my praise and love. Oh. Um, and that's been true so many times, so many times in life and also in art, I think. Um, and probably the realization of that was part of the reason to step away as well. It's like, I don't need this voice. Nobody needs this voice. <laughs> this is the voice of someone who is protecting themselves by being negative. And that is just sad. But I also think that's the culture, especially of criticism, maybe. Yeah, sure. Also, what's weird about it, I guess, is that there's a whole other part of me, which is, I suppose, the teacher part, who has no trouble at all loving everything <laughs> and authentically loving everything and not feeling like the love is somehow um, a disservice to the person by not sort of introducing rigor or any of those other things. Like all of those things can coexist for me in a perfect teaching moment. And I love that. And I love that feeling. Maybe that's the key for me is that when I think of an audience, I feel a kind of fear that there's a collective understanding that I'm not going to tap into. But when I'm teaching just one person, it feels easier. There's a great responsibility, but it's easier to just be with them in that moment and be very real and un uninterrupted in the feelings of, of thinking, oh, God, I love that thing. Oh, that line was amazing. Oh, when you do that, it gives me a huge feeling and cracks me open. To say that to one person feels easy to me. And this is the other thing also is, is trying to shed my suspicion when things feel easy. That if it's easy, it must be wrong or not well enough considered. That totally. to say that something is easy is actually also a misnomer. To say that it comes naturally is actually a better way of describing something, and it and it helps to then feel like you are putting your best self into the world. Oh, I'm doing what comes naturally, and then I'm thinking about that, and I'm trying to enrich it, rather than thinking, oh, it's easy, so I must be doing it wrong. <laughs> totally. I have similar moments um, when experiencing joy, thinking, like, when will the other shoe drop? If I'm feeling joy... Like it's got to be because ultimately something bad is around the corner. And I've desperately been trying to rid myself of that over the past few years of just being like, no, maybe I feel joy because it's just a joyful moment and like allowing that instead of fearing it. Oh, Jody, I wish um, you were a teacher. <laughs> I mean, you are, but like, I wish... Um, you did it all the time because you offer so much. It's funny because I I went into teaching and then I quickly left it um, for the right reasons. But then the question is, why didn't I go back? <laughs> so do you have an answer to that? Not really. A laziness, probably, partially. Um, and just taking a really long time to realize things about myself. Right. But now that I have kids in the house and then they bring their friends around, there is also for me, I'm just so fascinated and I, it feels so miraculous to be able to just be in conversation with kids. That just feels like 
a thing that I get to do every day that has not in 10 years ceased to amaze me every <laughs> single moment. Like when you wake up and you're like, they're still here and we still get to talk today. Can you tell me um, some things that either of them have said this week that have brought you joy or conversation bits? So my seven-year-old, we were having a conversation about a teacher that he knew that he felt was maybe very strict and would move very quickly to being upset with people if they didn't get the instruction the first time. And while he was describing the situation at the table with my parents as well, he started to cry uh, and he kept on talking through his crying. It was like he didn't want to sort of acknowledge the crying. He wanted to keep on talking. And later he said to me, you know, when we were talking before, I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was just crying because I was emotional. Hmm. And that seems like a really amazing thing for a seven-year-old to make a distinction around. And in the course of the a conversation, my parents had asked, Does, did that, if the teacher tells you that you um, are not doing something right, does that make you feel embarrassed? And he said, no, it's not embarrassment. I feel shame. Oh. And the fact that like, for me, I was kind of um, blown away by this distinction that he would understand the difference between being embarrassed and feeling ashamed. Well, that is like so specific, I think, to um, the action that is happening to him, which is somebody is shaming him. Yeah. And of course, as a mom, my protective instinct is that I don't want him to have to understand shame at seven years old, right? But the fact of the matter is that it's in the mix and he feels and he knows to talk about it and he's finding a way to discern between that and other feelings and that is quite amazing so this idea that it's a gift to be able to talk with kids ever mm -hmm. and a very big gift to be able to do it every day it's kind of that I don't feel like I remember very much I'm a terrible rememberer of my own life but sometimes seeing them move through these progressions brings back a kind of feeling in me um, that if it's not a direct memory about myself, at least it sort of reminds me of these shades inside of myself that I've moved through over the years. And sometimes that makes me feel more comfortable where I am. Oh, yes, I have had 43 years of experiences. Because of my crappy memory, sometimes it feels like I'm nothing, right? It's like, <laughs> I've been the same person all along. It's like, no, no. It's just that I'm really bad at holding any previous versions of myself at the same time that I hold today. Can I ask you two quick questions before we go? Yes, I will be quick about answering them. No, oh my God, you can take all the time. So... Before, when we were talking about beliefs um, and you were talking about not having um, confidence in your beliefs when you were younger or not being generous, what has enabled you to have confidence in them now? I think this notion of settling into, I'm just one person and I, I'm going to have the life that I have. I'm having it now. <laughs> I'm going to try to do my best in it. Um, but that being suspicious of everything is tedious and hmm. it, it's limiting, I think. And uh, 
I think I just became kind of tired of those limitations because they were self-imposed. And the and the alternative, which would be to be um, the smartest, most informed person ever, it wasn't panning out in a way that paid dividends. You know, it's like, for what am I doing this? I'm limiting my experience in order not to appear ignorant when really I need to just go full heartedly into the world with belief and then have those beliefs challenged and then evolve. There's no space for evolution in this other one where you're just like, I'm just not going to have any experience where I feel like I might be proved wrong. Totally. Those are two very good words, tedious and limiting. Yeah. And then the last question I wanted to ask you, what is something that you're either secretly good at or doesn't have to be secretly, but what is something that you're like, oh, inside me, I know this thing that I do. I'm quite good at this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I'm sometimes good at putting myself out there in very specific ways that people need just then. So I want to say 99% of the time I'm bad at that. I don't see those things, but the 1% of the time that I see them and I act on them, it's usually correct that that person did need that thing. And then it's like, we're friends for life. Uh, So I'm not very good at having a lot of friends and acquaintances, but I'm, I think I'm fairly good at selectively cultivating moments with a small handful of people. Um, And that is important to both of us or all of us. I think you are very good at that as well too. Wasn't that so great? Isn't she just the best? I mean, another idea for this podcast would be called Conversations with Jodi. (laughs) I could just chat to her forever. She's been an amazing support in my life, and I'm so grateful for that. And I just think she could offer that to the world. I think she's amazing. What she talks about at the end, about um, knowing what somebody needs specifically in a certain moment and giving them that thing and then they're friends for life. She did that with me and um, I think she can do that with everyone. She has incredible insight to what's happening in the moment, especially for artists and creators. And she has certainly helped my art expand and um, gave me the confidence uh, to write, basically. (laughs) So that's wonderful. My favorite part in this episode is when she talks about belief and having the confidence to own your opinions, no matter how foolish maybe that makes you feel, or perhaps she's moved past that feeling of foolishness. It sounds like it, but that we live in a world where sometimes it feels foolish to say that you believe in something. And I just love that because I think it's so true. I think we need to have confidence in our opinions more and our beliefs because, as she so rightly says, If we are willing to put our beliefs forward and then they are proved wrong, then we can evolve and grow. And also to stake claim to the joyful things that come easily to us and loving things, loving things with all our hearts. I love that part. I love a lot of things with all my heart. So um, it certainly reinforces with me anytime I have a conversation that it's okay to do that. 
And back to the send me your thoughts uh, request, which is if you have something that you either believed in as a child, like when I give the ridiculous example of believing in Santa Claus until I was 12, if you have a belief, something that you believed in as a child that maybe is a bit ridiculous, you believed in it for too long, or whether there's something you still believe in, I don't know, maybe you believe in ghosts, who knows? Own your opinions. Um, you should send them to me in a voice memo. I would love to hear them. So the email is this trying life at gmail.com and send me a quick word about what you believe in and maybe I'll play them next episode. Okay, thanks for continually tuning in, friends. You're all the best. Bye, see you next month. We'll be right